Hey y'all, this is Justin Mitchell from the Sun-Herald in Biloxi, Mississippi, and this is Out Here in America. Every other week, we're talking to members of the LGBTQ community across the country about their lives. Today, we're doing something special in Kentucky with another McClatchy newsroom, the Lexington Herald-Leader. Because there, in the heart of the bluegrass, a circuit court judge named Ernesto Scorsoni is helping rewrite Kentucky history and becoming one of the state's most vocal advocates for the LGBTQ community. I'm very pleased to have been able to play a role in, in the legislative arena on LGBTQ rights, as well as the legal arena. And I think we've all got a little role to play. To sit down with Judge Scorsoni, we're turning this episode over to our friend Daniel DeRocher, who's a longtime reporter at the Herald-Leader. He's been covering Scorsoni in a state with a history of discrimination. Oh yes, I was out to my family and friends and, and so forth, but I was not officially out. I never made a statement that I was gay. And I had to appreciate the fact that this was gonna hurt me politically and some people didn't care much for it. You know, I knew that. Daniel caught up with the judge to talk about secrets and civil rights in the bluegrass state and how coming out publicly was key to Scorsoni helping chart a path toward a more progressive, open-minded Kentucky. Stick around on Out Here in America. So I am super pumped that Out Here in America has a guest host today. His name is Daniel DeRocher from the Lexington Herald-Leader. He is the politics reporter in Lexington, deep in the bluegrass. Dan, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for, for letting me uh, guest host. It's, uh, it's been a fun experience. Dan, who is Ernesto? Tell us about him. So Ernesto is currently a judge here in Lexington, and prior to that, he was a, a politician in Frankfurt. He, he served as a representative in the Kentucky House of Representatives and as a, as a state senator in, in the Kentucky Senate. While he was there, he was kind of this big proponent for LGBTQ rights. Uh, in, in particular, he really fought hard against the constitutional amendment in 2004 to define marriage as between a man and a woman. He lost that battle, so the legislature approved the bill that would have allowed people to vote on the measure, and then Kentucky voted overwhelmingly to define marriage as between a man and a woman. But he was still there speaking out against it, and he kind of has had this whole career as a politician of speaking up for the LGBTQ community. So is Ernesto out? Yeah, yeah. So, so he was he was actually the first openly gay politician uh, in the Kentucky legislature. Wow. So tell me a little about Scorsoni's involvement in historic LGBTQ cases in Kentucky in the bluegrass that has kind of made national news. Yeah, so he, he was a lawyer um, while he was a politician. Obviously, it's a, it's a part-time legislature, so he was still working as a lawyer. And one of the most notorious cases, or one of the biggest cases that he had, was he represented a guy named Jeffrey Wasson. And Jeffrey Wasson was arrested in a sting outside of a gay bar in Lexington when he invited an undercover police officer to come back to his home for a nightcap, I guess is the polite way to say that. And so he got he got arrested and he went to Judge Scorsoni's office and Judge Scorsoni said, okay, well, we can challenge this thing. If you're willing to put yourself on the line, we, we can challenge this law and we I think we have a case that we could do it. He was working on this case and then in 1992, the Kentucky Supreme Court overturned Kentucky's anti-sodomy law. And that was uh, about a little under a decade or a little more than a decade before uh, the 03 case for the U.S. Supreme Court, when the U.S. Supreme Court overturned anti-sodomy laws. That is so wild to me. I mean, <laughs> I guess Kentucky and places like Mississippi have a lot in common. <laughs> That's true. 
the first two LGBTQ historic markers in the state of Kentucky just went up in Lexington a couple weeks ago. And one of them is marking the, the Commonwealth of Kentucky versus Wasson case, uh, the case that, that Judge Scorsoni was the lead attorney on. And then another one is honoring the bar where Jeffrey Wasson got arrested because that has been like this historic uh, LGBTQ establishment for a really long time in Kentucky to the point where I thought this was really cool when I was researching it. Grace Jones actually performed at the bar complex back in in the I guess 70s. It was just like it was this huge disco bar like there was this guy in New York City who said the best disco bar he'd ever been to was in Lexington, Kentucky. Like it was it was notorious across the country. And it was it was just kind of this really cool club culture I guess will and it's still around. I mean, it, it definitely doesn't have uh, Disco Inferno playing every night, but, but it still is an institution. It's super cool that Kentucky Internesto sees the value in honoring a gay bar with a marker because here on Out Here in America, we often hear stories from different people all the time about how important the gay bar is in rural areas and places in the South because there is no other place for gay people to go. It's just the bar. Yeah. And, and Lexington's kind of like the big city in the middle of nowhere, right? So a lot of people who are out in the in the foothills of Appalachia, they come to Lexington because this is the biggest city around where they can actually feel free to, to be more open about their sexuality. So going back to Ernesto a little bit, why is his story important to you? And why would Ernesto's story be important to our listeners? So there was a moment in that conversation that I felt like was, was was really strong. And so Ernesto was out to his family and friends and he was going to gay bars, but it was before he was out professionally. So he was at the bar complex and a couple of cops walked in. And these were cops that he saw in the courtroom when, when he practiced as an attorney. And I think his exact quote was, I'm, I was uncomfortable, but I stayed there, you know, but I, I didn't leave. Um, And I thought that that was so kind of powerful because I think that there are these moments as human beings where we just feel like this this deep fear or we feel like there's this spotlight on us kind of exposing all of our vulnerabilities. And we're presented with this choice of like, do you continue to stay there? Do you continue to confront that fear? Or do you shy away or do you back off? And the fact that even in those small moments, Ernesto said, yeah, I was afraid, but I stayed put. I pushed through it. I think that that's kind of the attitude that made him a trailblazer in Kentucky and made him a trailblazer for a lot of these these gay rights issues. All right, we're good. All right, so the, I mean, obviously, we just celebrated this historic moment in Lexington. It was the unveiling of two plaques, the first in Kentucky. I mean, I guess the, the first thing is just to talk about that news peg, that the significance of what it means, you know, in the community to have these two plaques. We, we've joined, uh, the, you know, the, <laughs> uh, the mainstream, if you will. You know, our history is Kentucky's history, and now it's being officially recognized in a, in a very traditional kind of way. And so we've, we've yet passed another test of legitimacy and inclusion. So that's why th- these are powerful statements uh, for our community. Yeah, and so, I mean, the process of getting those, how long did it take to be able to have those, those markers? It took several months. We had to present our research to the state authorities. They had to check it all out. And then we had to go back and forth on the language and decide the appropriate language. And then uh, we actually had the approval a few months ago, but then we decided to wait till June, which is historically Pride Month, to be able to do the official unveiling in early June. Yeah, and so 
I, I want to just <laughs> rewind real quick in terms of the scene in the sing, right? So, so there's the bar complex. It's a downtown gay bar, and then I was told there was there was a wall. And so, yes. so what what is, what was it like? What happened? Well, first of all, that was really a lot of hustlers operated there, male hustlers, you know. And I mean, it was clearly prostitution. There's no doubt about it. But then also behind the bar where Jeff was, there was also a lot of people that would hang around the bar, wouldn't go in. Some people were afraid to go in. You know, because as long as you stayed out, there was a certain amount of distance and protection. You know, you could just be driving through. You know, a lot of people would do hookups by just driving around. It was called the block. And they would never get out of the car and they would just look. And if they saw somebody else driving around, then they would follow them to their homes. Uh, and then some people just hung around the parking lot. And this, you, you didn't want to go in for one reason or another. You may not have been 21 or you just didn't like the bar, you were afraid to go in, and, and that's where you met people. And so the, the police officers were there, wired for sound, and uh, they would strike up a conversation, and then Jeff, like many others, said, hey, do you want to come home? It was an invitation from one adult to another. It was not for money, it was not prostitution. It was not to be public, it was in the privacy of home. So you had factually the perfect situation you know, to take up to the court. And that's why I thought this would be a strong case to take, yeah. And so he came to your office. Did he know you were gay when, when he came to your office? Probably. Certainly been referred to by other gay people because I ended up having three people in that sting. Yeah, I, th I think other gay people knew I was a practicing attorney. I'd be glad to do it, yeah. Yeah, and so in, in that historic moment, it was, it was 1985 when the sting happened, right? Correct. And so that's, I mean, that's post, sorry, the Mattachine Society, that's post uh, sure. Stonewall, that's like, that's, that's the AIDS was starting to be a thing, right? Was oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and you know, we had quite a few states that had already gotten rid of sodomy laws. Mm -hmm. You know, in Kentucky, the official model penal code that we considered in Kentucky did not have an anti-gay sodomy statute. Fortunately, we had this tremendous culture in Kentucky of privacy. You know, and, and, and you saw it in these cases involving alcohol and tobacco where the Kentucky Supreme Court says, now wait a minute, you know, these are people, they're, they're drinking in their home, you know, how are you gonna penalize them for this? It's the privacy of their home. Same thing with tobacco. So we felt like we had an argument to say, look, this is private, intimate stuff between adults. You know, the state has no right to regulate it. And so that was the argument. So what was the attitude towards homosexuality at the time in Kentucky? Oh, it, it was still a taboo, I mean, clearly, I mean, when they did this dragnet, you know, they, they had this big story, you know, because they arrested everybody or they cited everybody all at once. Big story in a paper, TV covers and all that kind of stuff. It was incredibly embarrassing to people. People lost their jobs, you know, they lost friends. It was, no, it was, it was horrible for a lot of folks, terrible. Just knowing that you were gay and then you could use this in like custody battles. You know, all of a sudden, you know, your partner, your ex-partner is, is committing a crime. Well, then that's a reason to keep them from having their kids, you know. And so when you look at like the larger picture of, of the gay rights movement, or at least when I do, and, and I look at the national news, and you kind of see this, this idea of in the 60s there was progress, people were coming out, they were starting to, to gain a little bit more acceptance, and then you have the backlash of Anita Bryant. 31 years ago, a Miss Oklahoma came within an eyelash of becoming Miss America, then virtually vanished from sight after a bitter controversy that pitted her against the nation's gay community. Today, in the Bryant, moment, in the 1980s, in Kentucky, did it feel like there had been any progress prior to 
where this was, or, or was it really just you'd always kind of had to be in the closet? You'd always kind of had to hide it? Well, I think, you know, any, everything here happens a little later than the rest of the country. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, people were feeling a little more comfortable about, about being gay, and, and the AIDS thing hadn't really hit us really hard, but it was beginning to hit us really hard. And as a matter of fact, when we had to argue in 1986 to our judge that uh, there was no reason for a sodomy statute, one of the things we had to deal with was AIDS. And, and was there any justification? You know, was there a public health reason to have these statutes because of the AIDS epidemic? And so we brought in actually an expert from U of L who had a big HIV AIDS practice and uh, say, no, look, this is ridiculous. You know, for good health care, you need a good history. Uh, you know, and if you've got patients that are unwilling to tell you their medical history because of fear that they're going to get uh, up against a criminal statute, well, then that's counterintuitive. That's not good for a good medicine. So we, we argue that even for medical reasons, you wanted people to be honest. You, you didn't want this to be a crime. You wanted people to be able to tell their doctors what, what the heck's going on. And the fear and the phobia, I mean, I remember in the legislature dealing with, with AIDS and what it did, you know, and the fear and apprehension about that. And then, you know, after Wasson, which the Supreme Court ruling came out in 92, then there was a pushback, and it was in the legislature, because then the, the politicians said, okay, if the Supreme Court's going to say, you can't have this statute because of the Constitution, well, let's change the Constitution. And so the push was in Frankfurt to have a constitutional amendment to be able to reinstate sodomy. And so we had to fight that fight. So, so you were you were elected to the state house in 1984, right? 84, so you yeah. were a sitting lawmaker when this happened. Oh, absolutely. You know, and even when I first got elected in '84, you know, the my main opponent knew I was gay and was thinking about using it against me, but then she decided not to. So there was some risk involved, but I just felt very strongly about this case. I wasn't going to keep that from from doing it, and. Uh, and then, in, like I said, in 92, then we had to deal in Frankfurt the effort to try to change the Constitution again. And uh, I still remember <laughs> uh, back then the Democrats had an overwhelming majority in the House. And so anything the Democratic majority decided was, was the way it was going to go. And so we had the caucus, uh, Democratic caucus, in the Supreme Court chamber where we had argued the Wasson case. And the Democrats were trying to figure out whether this thing would come out or not, or put it on, on the ballot or not. And um, I remember we'd, we disclosed some of the, um, you know, the, the way they had worded the sodomy constitutional amendment it was going to criminalize oral sex as well. You know, well those dirty old men, you know, they just freaked out. You know, how dare you suggest something that's going to make this illegal for, for people? So. They finally decided not to bring it out. It was done, I think, uh, in realization that if you put this on the ballot, the crazies would come out to vote on this constitutional amendment. It would hurt Democrats. So I think politically that was the, the reason that we won, even though some of oh, these other arguments were presented. And Yeah. And so when I was reading this profile of, uh, of Jeff, it was saying that like each time the case was in the newspaper, he, he pretty much lost his job. And what was it like watching that as, as he was the face and, and having to, to keep well, kind of spurring him on? It was very painful because there was not much I could have done about it. And uh, he, I think he lost his job twice during that process. During that time, he also got into a relationship with somebody who was very supportive. That was very meaningful to him and kept them anchored and, and helped a great deal. 
So I, I think that was a big part of it. Yeah, and, and one of the things that was kind of shocking to me in that profile was that he said he went to the bar complex the weekend after the ruling and people just kind of avoided him. They weren't cheering, they weren't celebrating. I mean, this must have felt like a huge decision, a huge victory for you guys. And I mean, weren't you a little taken aback by that? Well, first of all, you know, the bar crowd is not necessarily the newspaper crowd. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, in a lot of circles, it was well known, but, uh, you know, maybe Jeff was not well known to a lot of people. You know, I mean, I would go to the bar, but that, that doesn't mean people in the bar knew that I was the attorney in the case. So and people forget how difficult it is to get something in the public domain and for a large number of people to know something. Or, you know, it takes a lot of, that's why advertising, you know, you have to do repetition, repetition, repetition. One big story doesn't do it. So I, I wasn't surprised at that, and I'm not so sure that when people didn't come up to Jeff, it was... Uh, because of he fear or apprehension, I would say a lot of people still didn't connect the dots. Yeah. And then so about those, those repercussions, so in terms of you, I mean, what was it like for you being the attorney on this case? I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit about how you knew it. It had, the, it had this political baggage tied to it a little bit. Well, when I would go door to door, you know, and I've gotten, you know, I would get some notes and some letters you know, some hate mail or something like that. It wasn't a lot, but I mean, I got a few and, you know, they could never support me, you know, and that kind of stuff. But I was fortunate. I represented a very progressive liberal district, very democratic. It, it was a political hit of some significance, but it wasn't overwhelming. It certainly didn't defeat me. It didn't cause me to get a lot of uh, flack next election or anything like that. So part of the reason why I ask that is because when I look at political races throughout the state and when you look at the history of it, I mean, and there was always this idea of a whisper campaign when you have a gay candidate running or even just a, a, a candidate running that doesn't have a spouse. What are your thoughts on that? And that's the broad question is what do you think about? Well, I think statewide, it's still an issue. You know, certainly in the real parts of the state, it's still an issue. The fact that we can get some anti-discrimination protection in some smaller towns that's an indication that still it's, it's a tough sell. But, I mean, I think it's changing every day. It's going to get easier and easier, so I feel comfortable about that. There was a, a quote that I read, I don't know if it's yours, about ice sculptures. Have you compared <laughs> homophobia to an ice sculpture? What's yeah. that? Yeah, that was uh, Bernadette Barton, teaches at Moritz. She wrote a book, Pray Away the Gay, I think she would. <laughs> this, anti-gay stuff, LGBT, anti-LGBT, I kind of, I visualize it as kind of a, one of these ice sculptures at these events, you know, they used to be big, I don't think they use them as much anymore, but it's smelting, the temperature goes up and it melts a little faster, sometimes they cool off the temperature and it doesn't melt as fast, but I mean, you see it melting, I mean, it's amazing, I mean, I mean, I saw it with my own family, you know, and, and how, you know, it took a, it was difficult for my dad, particularly Sicilian, you know, even though he was highly educated. But lo and behold, it took years, but he came around, you know. He came around in a wonderful way. He, he embraced my, now my husband, you know. I mean, my God, he entrusted him with a family recipe on caponata, you know, which is the ultimate eggplant dish, you know. I mean, every family has their own way of cooking it, and, and he, he, he entrusted him with the recipe, not, with, not to me, you know. I mean, so that was the ultimate gesture. So now, I mean, I think if my dad can come around, anybody can come around. So I, I am hopeful, and, and, you know, you see it every day. You see with people 
at work and school and so forth. I mean, when I first made my public statement about being gay, uh, and I was sitting in the, in, still in the Senate, you know, everybody knew I was gay in the Democratic caucus. But it was like, once you said it publicly, oh my God, then everybody was uncomfortable. I had a senator that moved, you know, didn't want to sit next to me because somebody had taken a picture of us together and had used it back home to argue. <laughs> I don't know what the connection was, but anyway. And, and then, you know, uh, it, it, it was, there was a certain comfort level that I, I could bring it up or joke about it, something like that, and it wouldn't make absolutely everybody uncomfortable, you know. So uh, the more and more people know, family members and, and coworkers. I mean, I've always called this kind of the, the glass closet where you're out to your family and your friends, but you're not necessarily out professionally. And I, I think it's kind of interesting to look at the ways that that affects you as you go through your daily life. Did you have any kind of like fears of, oh my God, I'm going to get caught, or what are going to be the repercussions if, Absolutely. if it... And, and oh, yeah. What is that, that feeling like when you're... I mean, it's almost like a constant state of fear. I mean, you're afraid in public to be seen with somebody or caught in the act in a way. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, I remember early on, you know, uh, I mean, I didn't come out to the late 70s, you know, and, uh, like right after law school, really. Well, when I first came out, I didn't think I could be a lawyer and be gay. I mean, I, this sounds ridiculous, but I mean, I had absolutely... I didn't know a single gay person. You know, it, it took some adjustment, it took some counseling. <laughs> but even then, even though I felt comfortable about myself, it was still weird. Okay, here I am practicing law, you know, and, and I remember going to gay bars and, and uh, you know, the police coming because they were looking for somebody or something like that. I said, oh my God, now these are police officers I see in the courtroom and they're, they're going to out me or whatever. And I remember feeling uncomfortable, but I didn't leave. You know, I, I just, I was going to stay there and facing whatever happened to happen, you know. And now I'm constantly thinking about what is it going to do to my constituents, whether I'm going to lose support, friends. Oh, yeah. So 1992, you win this case, the anti-sodomy law is overturned, but then 2004, you're in the Capitol and you're having to fight this. this uh, the marriage. Yeah, the, the marriage, this constitutional amendment. They want to change the Constitution yeah. to make marriage between a man and a woman. What we are doing here today is reaffirming that the definition of a marriage is between a man and a woman. And there are people who led that fight that are still up in Frankfurt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, absolutely. What was that like after seeing progress and then feeling like they're trying to gra like almost take it away from you? Oh, it, it was painful. It was absolutely painful. I remember, you know, I, I, I certainly spoke out against it, but it was tough. I mean, we could only get four or five votes. I think we got five votes. I mean, I remember leaving the Senate vote afterwards just distraught, you know, that folks, uh, you know, even though they knew I was gay and so forth, you know, that didn't matter at that time. It was such a strong political current that was, you know, and I remember talking to David Karam, who was there from Louisville at the time, and said, Ernesto, this, this tide is too strong, you know, because, uh, you know, I was hoping that there was some parliamentary move that we could try to do or something, but, you know, it was hopeless. You know, we knew it, and... Um, there wasn't much we could do about it. Did it feel personal almost? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Like, it had to have been hard to look at, I mean, people who were your allies, who were Democrats, who saw things similarly to you, who had just voted against you, no? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a hateful vote. <laughs> I, they didn't see it that way. They saw it politically. They're overwhelming majorities in their district. This is what they wanted. Put it on the ballot. You know, because they could always say, well, let's put it on the ballot. 
you know, it's, I'm not really voting for it, but I just think the people have a, ought to have the right to vote on this. So there was all kinds of excuses that they could use, but it felt very personal to me. Yeah. And I mean, even today we see a little bit of it, right? I mean, you have the 2015 marriage ruling. Speaking to you from the steps of the Supreme Court, there is a right to marriage equality read just from the bench now. But then that same year, Matt Bevin ties himself to, to Kim Davis and, and he wins the governorship. We are blessed with an incredible set of values that the vast majority of Kentuckians hold. The core Christian values that this nation was built on and while some... Do you think that this is just a thing that we're going to continue to see that anytime you make too many steps or that it's two steps forward, one steps back throughout? Yes. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think it's unique to the LBGTQ community. I think any minority that's making progress, people feel intimidated. If it's a little too fast, they get squeamish and worried and insecure. And so they'll come back and lash at them. I mean, some people genuinely feel that way, and others use it as, you know, as a political tool. Those people I have very little <laughs> time for. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and it, it feels like it just has been used as a political tool in Kentucky for so long that it gets people to the polls, and so it's, it's used in that. I mean, right, wasn't that part of why they wanted to do that in 04 was to get people to the polls? Oh, yeah. I mean, on the national level, they clear. I mean, in Kentucky, you know, I didn't... You know, the presidential election wasn't really aided that much by the constitutional amendment. But I would say on the national level, it, it made a difference in some states. So do you find that there's always a little bit of a flinch, though, where you, you get that progress and then you flinch a little because you don't know what's going to come next? I mean, like, for I, I know you talked to another reporter uh, where you talked about the signs and you were like, I'm waiting for that to be to be vandalized or whatever, right? <laughs> like, is, is there that element of, of OK, so how's, what's going to be the repercussion? Oh, there's going to be that. I mean, there, I know there's there has been negative reaction to the signs, you know, and uh, but that's OK. But that, we're having a discussion about it, and that's very important. We're at least talking about it, and hopefully in a civil way. And man, if we're doing that, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Do you feel like there's, there's almost a difference in the gay experience in a state like Kentucky versus people who may have lived in San Francisco or New York or in some of those larger cities? I mean, and, and the rural gay experience as a whole, how do you feel like that shaped you as an individual, as a, as a man? Well, I think things are much slower here. And there's more resistance, and uh, you take a step a little more cautious here than you would in another community. And uh, you know, I've got good friends in uh, in places like New York and San Francisco and Chicago and so forth. And when I visit with them, I mean, it's it's like a time warp. You know, when you come down here, and and sometimes they don't appreciate it that that it's a little different here. You know, what is interesting, and you see it now on the national level that. You know, you, you've got all these gay foundations and, and organizations, and that they have been focusing more on the East and the West and the North. And folks, the battleground is here in the South. And uh, there's now an effort, a concerted effort in the 13 states in the South to say, hey, we need to do a little more here because this is where the battleground is. Yeah. And so if you can kind of reflect back on what you were going through in that hearing, and, and I mean, over the course of your, your career where you've seen the movement grow, I mean, what's your takeaway when you look back on your career in a way? I, I think it's pretty exciting to be part of a movement for civil rights for any minority that's been left out and marginalized. And uh, I, I am incredibly optimistic because I think we're making tremendous progress, and so I'm very excited about the future. 
If you even think back to the 20-something-year-old that was coming out of the closet, I mean, would you have ever pictured this, this day or what it would look like now? Or do you think that it would no. happen sooner? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I don't know. Maybe I did think about sooner, but I, did, I never thought AIDS was going to come in. You know, when I first came out, AIDS, you know, hadn't popped up. People all of a sudden didn't see us just as, a, as an outlier, but they also saw us as, as a danger. So I, I think that set us back in so, so many ways. So previous to that, I thought maybe it would have been quicker. Once we got into the AIDS epidemic and, and how horrible it was, I would say no, no, I, I, I think it's slow. And then in, in a state like Kentucky, I mean, I think, you know, organized religion is very powerful here. We've seen organized religion defend all kinds of things, including slavery in this state. It hasn't been pretty. So I think it's going to be a little tougher not to crack here in Kentucky because we have that. And when you get down to it right now, who, what is the organization that really fights against LGBTQ folks, you know, with any kind of consistency and it's organized religion? Not all of them, you know, and the work that's being done right now in communities of faith, I think is very, very important. If we, you know, cross that bridge, I think then we're home free. Yeah, I mean, there's this idea of this movement in the Catholic Church where it's starting to move a little bit more towards tolerance, but it's still, yeah. you know, there's always going to be a long ways yeah. to go. I mean, to me, the one thing that I'm very proud of that I've done is, is create this endowment and help build this endowment for LGBTQ stuff. Uh, it won't go anywhere because the only thing we use is the earnings every year to fund education work around the state. Just this year, it's a group of Baptists that are trying to educate other Baptists on uh, trans issues. There's all kinds of work going on in all kinds of faiths, and uh, that to me is, is very encouraging because if we can break that, that barrier, that's very, very powerful. What do you feel like is the biggest thing that we can do now in terms of furthering the civil rights for, for LGBT Americans? It hasn't changed since Harvey Milk said it to come out. My message to you is, Every gay person must come out. <laughs> I think that's ultimate. You know, you got to be true to yourself, and then if you're true to others, that that's it, man. And it's so powerful. It's um, it kind of melt away. You know, when 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 you see a, a real person, and then you have to, you know, you have to connect these negative thoughts and and pejorative notions with a real-life human being, somebody you, you may love or care for because of other reasons, oh, that is so powerful. It, it really breaks all kinds of barriers. So, Dan, is there anything you learned in your interview with Ernesto Scorsoni that you didn't know before? Yeah, there was actually a really big one. I was actually telling my colleague from Frankfurt who was there at the time when, when this was going on, but after Ernesto came out of the closet, he said, he said everybody in the Democratic caucus knew he was gay, but after he came out of the closet, one of the, one of the members in the Kentucky legislature asked to move seats so that they weren't sitting next to him, right? So like you learn things like that that like, I mean, as a reporter, you, you may pick up on it, but you never might notice because that's such a small thing. Like there could be a million reasons for why that person moved seats. And then you learn that, oh, well, that's because... Somebody had taken a photo of him next to Ernesto and he was afraid to sit next to him in, in the statehouse. But 
you know, isn't there a gay mayor in Lexington? His name's uh, Jim Gray. He came out about a year after Ernesto came out. I just covered him. He was running for Congress in the 6th Congressional District. He just lost a race to Amy McGrath, who was, who was a former fighter pilot. And so he was the first openly gay mayor of Lexington. But also, he kind of had this interesting story where when he first ran for mayor um, back in 2000, I think it was 2002, he felt like there was this whisper campaign launched against him talking about his sexuality. And as he was, as it was getting closer to the primary, people started whispering about, well, you know, Jim's gay. And he felt like it really affected his chances in that race. So when he wanted to run again, he said, all right, I need to come out so that this whisper campaign can't be used against me. And so he came out of the closet. He actually interviewed with one of my colleagues where he was just like, yep, I'm gay, and the voters have a right to know that I'm gay. Now, uh, and so it's, it's shifted into something that's a little bit more subtle. You see a little bit more dog whistles. You see people talking about family values. You see this more coded messaging about their sexuality. And a lot of the whisper campaign starts in the churches and, and it spreads through the, through the religious community. And so it's really interesting because I think that that's kind of a microcosm for how LGBT issues are seen in not only Kentucky, but in the country right now, where there has been so much progress that has been made in the past 20 years that people are like, okay, well, you're, you're pretty much equal now. And it's kind of like, well, no, there's, there's still some issues, right? So the biggest one in Kentucky is the fact that you can still get fired for being gay in most of Kentucky. You can still lose your housing for being gay in most of Kentucky. And these are considerations that some of the more rural gay Kentuckians have to take into consideration in their day-to-day -day lives when they think about coming out, when they think about how public they can be about their sexuality. So, so I think that that's the direction where it will head, but I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon. If anything, there are still laws being proposed that would create more religious freedom bills or, or would push back against some of those those equality measures that I think that some of the more progressives and some of the advocates in the in the gay community are trying to achieve. So Dan, we really appreciate you coming on the show. Hopefully we can talk to you again real soon. Yeah, it was it was a really fascinating conversation, really interesting. I'd actually been craving for a chance to to interview him uh, since I saw him at the historical markers thing just because I feel like he's been there for so much of Kentucky's LGBTQ history, right? So from the Wasson case all the way up through the marriage amendment, he's, he's been around and he's been such a prominent figure in Kentucky's gay history. And I feel like he's doing a, a big job in, in educating the public. Thanks again to Ernesto Scorsoni for joining us and to Daniel DeRocher for leading that conversation. Thanks also to Amanda McCoy, Caitlin Stroh, Jordan Marie Smith, and Davin Coburn for producing Out Here in America. We'll be back in two weeks with more stories like this. But in the meantime, subscribe to Out Here in America on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Leave us a review, and we'll see y'all soon on Out Here in America.